My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morellis. It's good to be back. It's been a minute. A lot of you wonder why. I was putting out an episode a week for over a year, and then uh, we had a little uh, hiatus here. Well, part of the reason is, for some of you who don't know, Crop Organization, we started with four, then turned to five. We had five for a while there, employees, and now we're at 13. We've been doing a lot of hiring. If you're interested in joining the crop organization team, representing with the shirt today, creating restorative opportunities and programs, you can go to our website or Indeed. We got about five or six jobs posted there, and we'll be hiring about 40 people by the end of the year in Oakland and LA. So feel free to come on board if you got a heart for um, criminal justice reform, restorative justice, reentry. Come to us, and we're doing it, and we're doing it well. We're doing a premier reentry program in Oakland and LA, and it's exciting, exciting work. But I'm happy to be back at the podcast today with my friend. I first met him on the phone in San Quentin Prison. Uh, he said, "He said, I said, how do you pronounce your name?" He said, "Like John, but with a T." So, Tan Tran, right? That is my. That is I. That's right. That's that right. So, fresh out of San Quentin after ten and a half years there. A little bit about Tan. It hasn't even been three months since he's been home, but something that's this guy is super impressive. Um, in in the in a humble way, I'll say he will be a star. He will he will be a star in this space and make a lot of amazing things happen. You uh, maybe it's the first time you heard his name, but you will hear it again. I promise you that. He's a, he was a a filmmaker on the inside. Uh, a podcaster. He's an organizer. He organized in there, organized out here, co-creator and co-host of the podcast. Some of you may have heard of it called Uncuffed. I was telling him before the show that I was thinking that of naming the prison post before we had it, the prison post to Uncuffed and Unfiltered, did a little Google search and this guy was already there. So you, you know what I mean? 28 years old, beat me to it. <laughs> right. Also the co-creator of the incarcerated film crew forward this productions and they can find that on YouTube. Some of the videos, Absolutely, you can find us on YouTube for this productions. That's right. And today's been out, not even three months and get this. He's a senior policy and comms fellow with the Ella Baker center. And mostly anybody in this space knows the Ella Baker center is to be the senior policy director may seem like, wow, that position after not even being home three months, but this was the first person that I had ever talked to. Tom, when I got on a call with you from San Quentin, you had met one of our co-founders there, Ted Gray, and my closest friend and brother, and and you were there. He said, you got to meet this guy. You got to meet this guy. You got to talk to this guy. And when I talked to you, you know, and heard your language, you know, as a coach, I'm trained to listen to language, but to hear your language about policy, already using human-centered language as well, not referring to us as inmates, but to incarcerated, that was our location. Mm-hmm. It's not who we are. And to hear you hear you talk, I could already tell there was no one else. I communicate with probably 40 people in prison right now, and there was no one else who was talking like that. And I could see, man, this guy's going to make a bigger, big, big change out here in this policy realm. So, um, yeah, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome to the Prison Post. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be here. 
That's what's up. Yeah, you ended up in Sacramento, huh? Yeah, yeah, this is the hometown right here, man. Sacramento. What? Shout out. <laughs> so ten and a half years, man. You, you know, uh, I asked you before. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't. I, this is my first time meeting you. Yeah. So I didn't know if you were forty or you know or thirty <laughs> or what what age, but twenty eight and did yeah. ten and a half. So you went in at eighteen. Yeah, right at eighteen. It was, uh, I committed the crime 11 days after my birthday and it was incarcerated about a week after that. So I was still a child essentially. And at the time when I first got incarcerated, they were talking about 75 years to life. And I was just stunned. I was like, I'm 18 years old, like 75 to life. What does that even mean? You know? So yeah, yeah it was one hell of an experience let me tell you, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. They throw numbers like that around 75, 50. As if, you know, 75, well, how old would I be? I'm 18, 75. And uh, back then, I don't, I think it was 85%. Yeah. So do the math. Yeah. But so what was the original length of your sentence? Uh, I, I eventually, because I was facing 75 years, it was like, look, man, we're going to offer you a deal of 17 years. That's a beautiful deal. If you don't jump on it, you're an idiot. I'm like, damn. Or you can go to trial and face 75 years to life. Right. I was like, oh man, trial tax is a motherfucker. So I took, yeah. I took 17 years. That was the deal I took. Right. Mm -hmm. So now, what I'm curious about is filmmaker on the inside, podcaster on the inside, mm -hmm. organizer on the inside. How did you come about? How did it come about where you had the opportunities to do that? Cause I was in Soledad. There wasn't those opportunities. Yeah. So how did you have those opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I was blessed actually to be, uh, to be able to transfer over to San Quentin state prison and uh, at San Quentin State Prison, they had a media room that was just unprecedented. They had, from my understanding, it's the only media room inside of a prison in the world. Like prisons have like a film crew. They'll have a podcast or even a radio program. But to have one place that has a newspaper, a podcast, yeah. multiple podcasts at that, a f multiple film crews, like it was it was crazy. It was like a wild environment in a good way um, that was just really nurturing of learning how to use, utilize these skills to like advocate for people. And one of the biggest things, like you mentioned language, like one of the biggest things, like the mentors that when I stepped into that space, they was like, look, man, like you have a privilege right now, right? Like. People don't get to do this in different prisons. They don't get to have podcasts or do film or radio or journalism even. Mm -hmm. So there's like, if you're going to step into the space, we need you to learn about this space and what it means to have this privilege. And I took that very seriously. Absolutely. Well, tell us about Uncuff first. For sure. Shout out to Uncuff. Season two just dropped. Episode one is out. Please go listen to it if you can. And uh, Uncuffed, actually, it was it was crazy because one of the biggest things I wanted to accomplish when I got to San Quentin, I said, you know, I want to learn how to start a podcast. Right. And I don't know how I'm going to do it or, or who I'm going to do it with. I just knew that that was something I wanted to do. Right. So that's when I stepped into uh, the media room. I started doing radio and learned how to do radio journalism. And our, that was with KALW, their local uh, radio station in the Bay area. And actually we eventually was like, you know what? let's start a podcast. Like that was just where they felt like was their next, like their next level of growth. And I was like, what? Sign me in. This is what I wanted to do. Like from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then it was about, it was about five currently incarcerated folks. And with the assistance of KLW, we started uncuffed and we part, we partnered with, uh, Solano. Solano had a radio program also. So we did, 
San Quentin side of Uncuffed and we had the Solano side of Uncuffed, right? And we're just taking stories from two different environments and just sharing them. So that was something that was like, it was an honor and a blessing. And that's one of the purposes of the prison post to share transformational stories of people that are currently or formerly incarcerated and those out here who are movers and shakers and leaders in this movement doing big things and trying to change the narrative. Is that one of the purposes there? What was the overall purpose? Yeah. So when we first started Uncuffed, like we, it was like, we had a lot of contentious arguments, like, like, why do we want to start a podcast? Right. Right. Cause everybody knows the other podcasts at San Quentin Ear Hustle, right. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing. Shout out to my brothers, Erlon, shout out to Banks, shout out to all of them over there at, uh, at Ear Hustle. Um, they're doing amazing work already. So why have another podcast? Like mm-hmm. what was the purpose? Right. And we felt like one thing that Ear Hustle didn't do, right. was like, we wanted to really advocate for people. But when we, when we share these stories, we want to be able to have the intention of, trying to create a space that that allows to get people out of prison, right? Like we wanted to create a space that will allow people to like get a glimpse of what it's like inside, but like a deeper level, like a deeper conversation around like specific topics. For example, like we had an episode about parenting in prison, right? And it was like a incarcerated person's relationship with their father while they're in prison. And we just wanted to dive deeper. We wanted to dive a little deeper to create some impact, right? And and hopefully nudge the door a little bit open more to allow people to come home. That makes sense. And it's, you know, you're in a progressive environment when you want to do advocacy from a prison podcast and it's allowed. Yeah. So, you know, what I always heard good things about San Quentin and a lot of guys, it was hard to get there. Mm. And, um, you know, though we know that the system isn't where it could be, Mm. that's at least one place where somebody had the mindset to allow for some programs like that Mm -hmm. and podcasts. Like you said, the the newspaper journalism, I just met one of the senior editors or the chief editor the other day. He's out now. Uh, I think he worked with y'all. Jesse Vasquez. Yeah, Jesse. That's my dog. (laughs) Shout out. Yep. Yep. Jesse. And uh, now he's running a, what is it called? Um, Friends of San Quentin. Friends of San Quentin. Friends of San Quentin and yeah, definitely want to talk to him and work with him. I know you guys are connected. So did that lead to Forward This Productions? No. Nah, so Forward This Productions was actually uh, a separate project. Right. And, and me, for me, I was just passionate about just doing the work. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know what the work looked like. All I knew is that I, I, while I was incarcerated, like as much as I suffered, like my biggest thing, I didn't want no one to suffer the way I suffered. So with the limited resources available to me, like whatever was around me, I said, I want to participate. Like I, I was excessively volunteering. I was like, I will be the guy to do the heavy lifting. Like I don't mind. Right. I just want to create some type of impact. And um, that said, like when I started off doing radio um, at the time, there was a film crew called First Watch. Right. Mm-hmm. First Watch Films and shout out to Anon for starting First Watch Films. And there was they were in a space of transition. There was like, we need some new people. Um, we know, we know that you're a creative person. We know you, you're doing radio right now. And we believe you got the capacity to be doing film. Also, I've never done film. I had no interest in film to be honest. Right. But they're like, look, we know you're an advocate. This is the opportunity to advocate for people. I was like, all right, say less. And I joined first watch and with first watch, that's when I learned all the film skills. Like we taught ourselves, we read books, watched tutorials, and we just kind of taught each other like them when each other being the incarcerated folks, we taught each other how to do film. And then from that space, when after the pandemic, we're like, you know what, like 
we want to take this in a different direction and a different vision. So that's when the team was like, you know what, let's create something new. And that's when we developed for this productions. If there was a video that's on YouTube that we could clip into this, so you give a, we could give people a look after the show, a tie it in like right at this moment or something like that. Yeah. If there was a specific one that you'd want to tie in, which one would it be? For sure. And, and maybe I'm biased because I created it. But <laughs> it's, all <good. laughs> it's all good. Yeah. My favorite, like one of uh, like the most meaningful pieces I did is actually called dying in prison. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's about um, Gary Cooper He's an elderly man. He's an elderly Vietnam veteran who's dying in prison from cancer. And he's been struggling to get a compassionate release. And it's just no luck. And I wanted to, like every single day on a tier, I would see Gary walk by myself. And time and time again, you would always hear somebody say, it's like, man, if only someone would help Cooper. If only someone would help Cooper. And I heard that for like at least two years. And finally, I reached the point where I was like, I'm tired of hearing about, I wish someone would help him. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to help you, Cooper. I have this platform of film. I want to share your story. How do you feel about that? He said, yeah, let's do it. And that's when I did dying in prison because Cooper is literally dying in prison. Is he still there? Yeah, he's still here right now. And uh, he has a board date coming up. So I'm praying for him, trying to give him whatever support he can get. Has he been to board before? He's been to board before, but he's uh, he had to cancel it because actually he had to go to the hospital. Like he's in and out the hospital constantly. Uh, he has leukemia. He has a whole slew of sicknesses. And if you watch the video on YouTube for this productions, dying in prison, you'll hear all about Gary Cooper's story. All right. I hope to clip it in. Let's talk about that real quick. Compassion, compassion, empathy for the incarcerated. Here's a guy who's dying in prison. He has cancer. He's in and out of the hospital. And yet, Sometimes, even with my 21 years, it just felt like you're forgotten. Mm. You're warehoused. You're forgotten. Nobody sees your plight. They probably don't see or hear the plight unless, you know, we we rally the troops to get somebody high up to hear his name, Mm. to see his story. And then it's possible for him to get a commutation or 1170. But it's like there's a culture in there that just really doesn't care. And, um, you know, I'd like to hear your perspectives on how we could change that in prison and have some compassion for those who are sick, dying. I know of somebody's, uh, a friend of mine's husband who has leukemia mm-hmm. at North Kern and um, actually just transferred. But that, and then we'd like to, I'd like to go over, um, you know, what happened with the whole COVID crisis there. And, mm-hmm. you know, for some of us, we get little tidbits on social media and what's going on. But for the most part, you know, because of that media embargo, mm-hmm. we don't really get the whole story. Yeah. Somebody who just left there a couple months ago, would you be willing to share that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like compassion and talking about that COVID-19 experience at San Quentin, I think that goes hand in hand. So I'll I'll start with saying I actually had COVID-19 three times oh my God. while I was at San Quentin, right? When I was released from prison uh, about two months ago, a little over two months ago, I actually was positive with COVID and COVID nineteen for the third time, and um, just even thinking about it right now, it's like it messes me up. It was like I have never felt so meaningless like I did during COVID nineteen in San Quentin. Um, I remember when I got COVID-19 for the first time. So I'll start with this. 
I remember when I got COVID-19 for the first time, I was like curled in a ball, throwing up, blinding headaches. I was just terribly sick. And, um, and during this time, this is when all the COs had just left us there. When COVID-19 hit, all the COs left. Were you still in a cell or were, were you in the tents on the yard? So I was in the cells. Uh, I never actually went to the tents on the yard, actually. So I didn't have that experience or into the factories uh, when they were housing us inside of the prison factories, too. What does um, that mean? The COs just left? The COs literally just left the building. They locked us all in our cells and they left the building. And and they usually serve us, like, for example, they serve us dinner around like 4 p.m. every day, like, we were screaming, shouting out the, shouting out our bars, like feed, like give us our food, give us our food. And it wasn't until like 9 p.m., 10 p.m. when someone like two COs fed, like fed the entire building. Like they just came back and was like here, right? And they fed the entire building. But I remember being locked in that cell and having COVID-19 for the first time ever, just deadly sick and, and just wanted some medicine so badly and I would see these nurses that would walk by and they would do temperature checks and ask us, do we got symptoms and stuff? And I remember telling the nurse, like, yeah, I'm sick. Like, I need medicine. Please just give me some medicine, right? Um, I'm like in tears, begging. I've never begged for medicine in my life. I was begging for medicine. And the nurse would say, I'm so sorry. All I do is, all I do is temperature checks. And they left. And then the next nurse would come. I was like, please, please, I'm, I'm sick with COVID. Like, I feel like I'm dying. Like, I just want some medicine. It's like, I'm so sorry. You got to ask the, the pill call nurse and they would leave. And that was like the cycle that I was experiencing uh, while I was sick with COVID, locked inside of the cell. And at this point, we were already been locked down for like a month straight. Um, we didn't walk out the cell. I didn't see the sun. I didn't feel the sunlight, anything. I was just trapped in this four by nine cell. Imagine like a closet sized cell where you can touch both walls with stretching your arms out, right? And it was finally till there was like, I think it was like the fourth or fifth nurse I asked. And I asked, I was like, can you please give me some medicine? And she tried to hit me with the spiel like, oh, I don't give medicine. I just blew up. But I was like, lady, I'm freaking dying in here. Like, I'm fucking dying. Like, I just want some fucking medicine. Can you please help me? Mm-hmm. And then like, I just seen the compassion on her face. She said, let me see what I can do. She came back about like 10, 15 minutes later, and then she gave me some medicine. I was like, damn. I was like, wow, like, was it really that hard? Because it really wasn't. But it took like breaking, breaking rapport and just either yelling or getting like that for to tap into their humanity. Right. And like I had to snap, snap at her to snap her out of her complacency because It's so easy when you're looking at a human being through some bars to feel like this is not a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, it was easy for them to just walk by when they see me locked inside of a cage and you see this whole row of hundreds of people just inside of cages like animals. It's easy to walk by and say, well, I can't help all of you, so I'll help none of you. Right. And that experience, like I said, I've never felt so demeaned in my life like. I yeah. felt like if I if I truly like I felt like I died in that moment, they would probably just shovel my body about it there and just take me out. And that's literally what was what was happening. Alarms was blaring day and night. Um, people were the guards would take their sweet time to go to the cells. Uh, when we hear man, man down, man down, you hear people shouting and alarms will go off. And then slowly after a while, you hear some keys jangle up. Oh, he's down. Call medical. 
medical, escort the body out. A few days later, oh, did you hear? E died. When they escorted him out, he was dead. And like that, that became the net, like that became the common narrative. Like anytime someone was sent out, uh, went to the hospital, I'm like, damn, they, is he going to make it back? Right. So rest in peace to E, rest in peace to all the folks that passed away during uh, that outbreak because it was terrible. It was terrible. Like I, even me trying to describe it right now, like I'll never be able to fully describe it. Right. And I don't, and I don't think people will ever fully be able to like understand how inhumane that was Mm -hmm. and like how traumatizing and scarring it was. Right. And I'll share another last thing that, that sticks with me is that I remember, uh, I think we're about like four or five months into the lockdown and we would probably have a shower once every week. One, like it was like once a week we would have a shower. Um, they would let us out the cell to shower and then right back into the cell. And then, um, I remember it was like in the middle of the day, I'm just sitting there on my bunk, just staring at the ceiling, like, cause that's really all you can do. We've been locked in the cell for months, 23 hours, 24 hours a day. Um, and I know I just hear somebody screaming, like it's a grown man shrieking. He's literally shrieking. Yeah! Let me out my cell. I just want some air. And then he breaks down crying. Like to hear a grown man shriek just to get some air, just to be let out of his cell and to hear the way he was sobbing from his soul. That haunts me. That yeah. haunts me. Like I, I hear it clearly hear it. in my head. Like it haunts me. I'll never, I will never heal from that. You know? So yeah, that was a terrible experience. That was a terrible experience. So yeah. Like talking about compassion and the lack of like, that experience of San Quentin was like the most blatant lack of compassion I've seen. And at the same time, like there was also like an uprising in the community, a beautiful sign of compassion in the community. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think about our perspective in there where, like you mentioned, I got up and I yelled through the door and then I finally had to shift my tone to get more attention. Mm. But most of us in there, we come to a point where they just don't believe us. They don't care. Yeah. We're subhuman. We're behind the wall. You know, it's like prison was supposed to be the punishment, the location going there, mm. not all the other things you want to add to it mm. by thinking that you need to perpetually punish us in some way, medically, educationally, Mm. vocationally, um, by my language, you know, just to continue the oppression that somebody along the way spread this disease. And that is the environment, Mm. you know, they're like, well, why don't you, why didn't you put in a 602 or why didn't you do that? You know, they just don't know what goes on there with 602s or putting in a a request to see a doctor. They just don't know. It ain't happening. And, and so there were probably, you know, hundreds, if not thousands across the whole state where they just didn't get up and do what you did, mm. expecting somebody to come. Mm. And I'm getting sicker and sicker and I eventually die mm. because of the, the state that we accept, mm. the despair that we accept as, as though, yeah, we deserve this. Mm. Um, I visited a place uh, in L.A. Oh, the other day and the conditions of this reentry facility Six people in a room, a little bit bigger than this. I mean, a bed in the middle of the room, a guy who's free and his stuff tucked under the bed. 
and then two bunk beds on the wall, two bunk beds on this wall, another bed over here. There's not even any room to barely move. Mm. And I saw some of the former uh, lifers that I knew there and gave them hugs. And, and I could tell from my freedom of being out that I could tell that this was an injustice. But from their perspective of being out, they were just happy to be free and didn't even realize that it's an injustice. Mm. From being treated that way for that long, they didn't even know. It's just like, man, I'm happy to be free. Mm. And like, look at the conditions here. Like, they ain't, they ain't even tripping yet. Wow. And um, so, you know, and 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 then, and then one of the places said, they said, um, I said, they said, we're going to be remodeling this, you know, six story place with, you know, 750 beds. We're going to be remodeling this. And I said, when you remodel it, is everybody going to get their own room? I said, oh, no, no, we, we, we got to keep the numbers up because the, the contracts to come in. Wow. You know? And when that perspective that was there with us in incarceration comes out here to free people and they still think mm. that they, that we needed to be treated that way, even in freedom, we didn't need to be treated that way there. First mm. of all, then we still don't need to be treated that way here. And then that, you know, that, that, that carries over even into parole. Yeah. My, my agent came to visit me yesterday and at crop, we won a cares grant to go into Soledad and an innovative programs grant to go into Solano. Mm. So here's CDCR grants saying, yes, we want formerly incarcerated people to go into these prisons to run, mm. re, you know, rehabilitative transformational programs. Ours is a vision building uh, program, goal setting program called quest. And then I hit up the parole officer he don't answer my texts. He don't answer my calls. You know, I need the permission to go beyond the 50 miles. Mm. This is a CDCR program that I'm getting. The CDCR is asking me to go into our organization to go into. And yet another arm of CDCR say, I don't care. Yeah. So there's a disconnect there. Yeah. That's bananas. Tan, you're at a Ella Baker center now, senior policy. What are some of the things that you're working on? Some of the laws that you're working on legislation, uh, what perspectives, or first of all, how did that, that that heart for advocacy form on the inside inside of you? And now, how are you bringing it out here? For sure, um, I'll always go back. Shout out to James King. James King, shout out, brother. If you're hearing this, love you to death, brother. I remember um, it was 2019, so I've been involved with media work and just doing just advocacy in every single form that I can think of. Right. But I never knew like policy work existed. I didn't know organizing existed. I didn't know it was a thing. Right. Like from South Sacramento, I never heard about an organizer. You know what I mean? All I heard was about gangbangers and drug dealers. That's all I knew all my life. So when my brother James, he was like, Hey man, you should go to this policy group. We got, I was like policy group. What's that? You know what I mean? He's like, y'all just talking about laws and stuff? He's like, nah, man, we in there trying to change laws. I was like, incarcerated people? Changing laws? He's like, bro, show up. Mm -hmm. So I show up, and I show up, and then I see this group of incarcerated people speaking at a high level, you know, doing doing high-level things while incarcerated, you know, and they were successful at that time of, like, changing some laws like they were there were these were the minds that were behind 1437 sb 1437 they were the minds that was behind um creative prop medical 17. yeah prop 17 the pro, the co-pays right the medical co-pays like i was like stunned to be around with like such educated and powerful incarcerated people and it was like a paradigm shift in my head mm -hmm. like it was almost instantaneous where i was like wow, I have so much more worth mm -hmm. than I thought, Absolutely. right? Like, even though I am incarcerated, it does not mean I'm powerless, 
right? Like I was convinced that I was powerless to change anything. And all I could do was kick and scream. Like me doing media was my version of kicking and screaming, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was like, shit, I don't know what change I can do, but I can kick and scream and make noise, mm -hmm. right? But now here was an organized effort to actually change laws. And it blew my mind. And I started participating and organizing, uh, like funneling some of my energy from media towards organizing. And uh, I was blessed to be able to start up with uh, James King, the first inside outside fellowship that actually paid currently incarcerated people to do policy work oh, from prison. Wow. Yeah. And I was the first uh, fellow ever uh, blessed, blessed to do that. And the outside fellow was Issa. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, yesterday was like a full circle moment for us because we're both full time employees now at Ella Baker Center. And we were at the Capitol yesterday lobbying, um, trying to support SB 300, Senate Bill 300. That's trying to uh, fix some of the L, uh, laws around uh, LWAP yeah. right, for fellas that's been sentenced to life without parole in special circumstances. So here here we are now at the Capitol knocking on doors, trying to trying to get people to listen, you know, and, and I would have been there with you, but I was double booked as a Salado. Oh, no, you missed the, uh, the faith leader action. Yeah, I seen that. I seen mm -hmm. that. It was love, though. It was love. Um, we was there for you. We was there for you. Thank trust you. me. Yeah, we stepped up and we made it happen. But yeah, so that's how I carried like the advocacy from the inside and learning about policy and then actually taking actions to like be able to impact policy and creating a system so that when I stepped out, like I was fully employed. Yeah, Tom, let's go back to COVID real quick. I want to, you know, we we you shared some personal stories. But what 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 eventually culminated from all that? I mean, after thirty days of the lockdown, the tents, people coming out, um, um, went. You know, did it by the time you left? It was probably still there. You know, yeah. they're picking back up now. What do you see that was done wrong? What could have been done better? I mean, outside of the you know treating people with like decent human beings with some yeah. freaking dignity, um, but it, it seems so easy for us, like bring a team in to bring people medicine. And then I heard that they were having people that were sick like yourself. Oh, now why don't we move you over here? And that mm. way the COVID spreads. Yeah. And then let's ship you out of this prison and go f infiltrate another prison. And that stuff just spread like crazy. It's hella deaths. Mm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's famous. It's infamous now about how the San Quentin outbreak started because I remember when we first went on lockdown, we was locked down for like at least two months. No COVID cases, right? And um, the biggest outbreak that was happening, I believe it was in Chico, right? Uh, or Chino, Chino mm -hmm. State Prison. And out of nowhere, they decided that we're going to move over 100 people from the worst outbreak in California's prison system. And we're going to just move them all to San Quentin and mix them in with the population. Mm -hmm. That just seems like a smart thing to do, right? So when they brought that bus and then those uh, the fellows from Chino landed, Immediately, it just spread like wildfire through San Quentin. And then it just after that, we were falling, just falling. Yeah, just man down, man down every day. And it was just alarms multiple times a day from day to night. And it was absolutely terrible. And, and nothing has changed. Like like when I, I left, when I was paroled, literally very little has changed. They believe that there was this false sense of security that, oh, these fellows are vaccinated now. They're going to be all right. That wasn't the case. Like, fellows were still getting COVID-19. They were still getting hospitalized. And 
even if the fellows weren't getting hospitalized, like how is that how is that humane to just purposely infect a person over and over? I, w- I had COVID nineteen three times in a matter of like an of, of a span, a span of like a year and a half. I was infected with COVID three times. I was fully vaccinated. Still That's didn't crazy. stop. It didn't stop COVID from hitting me two more times after getting my vaccine. So yeah, it's bananas, man. Like right now, like. One of the things I think about since I've been free, I think that I, I couldn't understand because while I was still incarcerated, I was like, why, why did, it's just not popular no more. Like, why did people forget that COVID is still in prisons and that people are still suffering? Right. And I got out and I realized about COVID fatigue and I realized how the world has quote unquote learned to live with COVID. Right. Like out here, we're comfortable now. Mm-hmm. We're comfortable now. Like we don't wear masks everywhere no more. Like we feel good. It's like, ah, if you get sick, they got pills for it now. Right. It's not a terrible mm-hmm. thing now to get COVID outside. Right. Um, we're still trying to be conscientious, but we, quote unquote, learn to live with COVID. So we're comfortable. But learning to live with COVID inside of prison, what that means is that now we've learned to live with solitary confinement. We learn to live with being infected over and over we learn to live with not getting education, not giving work opportunities. We learn to just being isolated. We learn how to not get on phone calls to talk with our families. Like it's terrible. It's terrible. And I don't even know how to ring the bell no more. I'm trying to get the world to like pay attention. Like, yo, living with COVID in prison is absolutely different than living with COVID out here. We're comfortable out here. And it's terrible inside. Like they're suffering. The fellows are suffering. So, yeah. So, that literally nothing has changed. Like nothing has changed. So back to Ella Baker Center. I mean, I could I could see that as well. That I hear the cries. I have like probably I get calls from people in like probably ten different ten twelve different prisons and similar sentiments. Definitely similar sentiments. Um, do you have any goals of going back and like the, those ideas for me, it's been three and a half years for you, not even three months. And so some of the things that may be fresh in your heart, like here's what's still going on here and probably is in other places that I want to make some changes with mm. appreciate the a, um, AB 300. Um, but, um, are there other things that are on your mind? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, since I got out, I've been making a full court press of trying to get back inside. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and support the fellas inside that's known for this productions uncuffed. Like I, like one of the first things I said when I stepped out those gates, I said, we forgot somebody in there. We forgot Greg Eskridge. Shout out to my brother and co-host of uncuffed Greg Eskridge. I'm trying to get him out mm-hmm. of prison. My goal now is to free people. Like I want to free people who deserve it. Like so many people are deserving. Right. And then people we. One thing that, that Greg always said to me that was very poignant was that he was like, if they can't see you, they can't free you. Exactly. Right. And and so I think that's one of one of my biggest goals is to create proximity. Right. Like I want people to see in, like currently incarcerated people, but also formerly incarcerated people. Right. Like three months ago, I was a dirty inmate to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of a lot of these people would not they would flinch at the sight of me. And as a matter of fact, for years, I was used to staff flinching at me like they would get terrified when I would walk around, not because I was a dangerous person or anything, but because I was wearing CDCR blues. 
right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm trying to show people, and I actually have a blast doing this. I'll talk to people. I have a full-on conversation. They're like, you're so cool. I was like, yeah, I was in prison. I just got out of prison two months ago. Oh, what? Yeah. I would have never guessed you were in prison. You're so articulate and so <laughs> educated. And I'm like, you'd be surprised. There's thousands of fellows inside of prison who are educated, yeah, who are articulate, who yeah. are kind, compassionate empathetic you know what i mean capable so absolutely I think there's this idea there's this idea that people you you committed a crime or practicing criminality at one time in your life and leading up to you know whatever a year 10 years life sentence that you're just going you now while you're living in there like oh he's in prison whatever happens he's in prison and prison means that he's perpetuating his criminality in there Mm. when for the most part 95% 95% of the time, that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. So definitely um, part of the policy work we're doing out here is shifting these narratives. Mm. You know, part of crop organization of inviting people to come to our reentry program saying, hey, we're going to provide you digital literacy, financial literacy, mm. professional workplace skills, uh, careers in tech. Mm. And yeah, I hear that too. Careers in tech. You sure you can do that? Mm. There's no difference between them and you. Mm. You know, maybe you didn't get caught. But they did. We were there. Mm. Now we're out. Same brain. All we need is opportunity. But you want to keep on shutting down opportunities thinking that we're only worth the sweat on our back, off our backs mm. in the gig economy. Well, maybe you can find something in construction. You know, shout out to those who love construction and want to be a foreman <laughs> or own their business. But that's not everybody. Actual. You know, and, and, and for those who aren't in tech, there's a plenty of other careers as well. They might want to be a professor. Mm. Musicians. Mm. I know that you musicians, filmmakers, there's, there's no difference mm. between incarcerated people and people out here. It's just an opportunity. Yeah. And then if your mindset is, is wrapped around, well, why should we give them that, that opportunity? 95% of people are going to come home. What kind of neighbor do you want? Factual. What, what, what's going on with you that you don't want that other person to succeed? Factual. You know? Factual. <sighs> Yeah, man. Nah, you hitting the wrong yeah, point. Yeah, All yeah, I can yeah. say is, "Amen, brother." You know, I feel it. Fired up. Uh, some of the challenges that you faced in reentry so far. Oh man, I will say this: like when they let me out the gates, they they left me with COVID nineteen and two hundred dollars. That's <laughs> that's what that was the two things they gave me when I left prison was COVID nineteen and two hundred dollars, and that was it. That was it. And what you do with the two hundred? Uh, bought some Jack in the Box and it was terrible. <laughs> Let me tell you, man, it was terrible. And I paid for gas and that that and, and now you got a whole two hundred. Yeah, I had like a hundred dollars left. I was like, well, Jack in the Box and gas. Now yeah. I got a hundred left. Right? I was like, this is terrible. And I seen the prices of gas. I was like, six dollars a gallon. I was like, oh yeah, I ain't gonna have no more this this money they put on this card. But yeah, man, like honestly, like one thing that a lot of my brothers who went home told me. When I was still inside, it was like, bro, just because you go home doesn't mean all your problems go away, mm-hmm. right? Like, because we're so we're we're so disgusted by our daily reality while being incarcerated. Like every day, I would wake up and physically feel like I did not belong here, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't belong in prison. Like, I don't deserve to be treated like this, right? So when I got home, like uh, a part of me was joyous, right? I'm like, yes, I'm free. And then they were like, all right, now where are you gonna live? All right. What car are you going to drive? You know, it's like, oh, how are you going to pay your bills? And all of a sudden life just boom, boom, boom hit. And I was like, oh, snap. I'm like, all right, what am I going to do now? 
right? Like I have, I have bills coming up now. I have to pay for my phone. And like, thank God I had family, family and friends and Ella Baker Center actually did a GoFundMe for me and made sure that I had some money in my pocket coming home. That's it, beautiful. Yeah. And it created, and what's crazy is that there's this expectation for people to come out of prison and immediately dive into the workforce and immediately become quote unquote productive members of society. But my brother James, right? My brother James, he asked me before I got out, he said, what do you like to do on the weekends? Mm-hmm. And not when I'm, and I'm not talking about what you like to do in prison. What do you like to do on the streets on the weekends? That's on my pinochle. Right. <laughs> I was like, so I can't say chess. Right. Mm-hmm. No, he was like, and I was like stunned. I was like, I don't know. He said, Tan, you need to take that first month. Really, you need to take at least two months. Don't work at all. You need to take that time to heal from what you just experienced. It's not normal for a kid to go into prison for 10 years and come out. You don't come out of that normal. Like you have to take some time to heal and, and, and learn yourself again. So I think that was a huge part of, of my reentry was just, I spent that first month just spending time with family and just reflecting by myself. I was also blessed, like uncuffed, flew me out to Norway. I spent the week out in Norway, uh, visited all the prisons in Norway not all of them, but a handful of prisons in Norway to learn more about that. But like, I just took some time just to like that first month, like with the money that a lot of folks uh, helped supported me with, like that basically cushioned me for a month, right? To just heal, take time to just heal. And I find out, I found out I like to paddleboard on the weekends. So now I got a chance for James King, right? I like to be on the water on the weekends. But that first month- You couldn't month, have known that when you were in. Like, I I've never known that. But, with, with, with me, I mean, it, some people may think this is sad. Um, I don't, um, but it, but it may be a little bit sad. Me, uh, I don't really think outside of some of my colleagues, I don't have one friend that I hang out with that's not a former lifer. And we hang out every week. Every week we go do something. Yeah. And we are still discovering what we like to do on the weekends. Mm. We've tried the top golf, the bowling, uh, <laughs> just going to each other's house, Madden. We don't even know. Yeah. We're just all over trying to do anything to find out what we, what we like. We don't know. All my 20s, all my 30s, and now I'm 40-something, you know, playing Madden because just to see if that's my thing. Yeah. You know, and, um, yeah, we don't know. We have to rediscover it and, you know, choose. Like, oh, paddleboard in the water. This is me. Yeah. And you might get all into it. You know, you, who knows? The sky's the limit. But there's n- nothing that could have prepared us for that. Right. And we need that time. And like you said, a month. Maybe it's maybe it's years or a year, but we don't have that because, boom, you got to get in, got to get in or survive. Thank God you have the support. A lot of people don't. Yeah. They're just going to straight homelessness. Yeah. If, and, you know, if there wasn't a, some type of transitional housing or something. Right. And, and I want to share that, too. It's like, like, even though I had so much support. Like I'm still struggling. Like it's about to be three months. I, I'm 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 volunteering to go into a transitional house. It wasn't mandated that I go to a transitional house, but I'm volunteering because I'm struggling to pay my bills. Like I'm I'm struggling. Like I have a great job, but like y'all know the prices of rent nowadays. Like after if after rent, I don't really have much left for anything else. Mm-hmm. Like and I need to purchase a car. I don't have a car yet. You know, I've been out for three months. I don't have a vehicle. I don't have a house to stay, right? Thank God my sister's been letting me stay with her, but I can't just stay at some, I just can't crash somewhere forever. So like, like I only imagine like 
the majority of people don't have the opportunities that Tan had. Mm. I was blessed. I was blessed. And yet here I am struggling. Right. And, and I can only imagine the majority of folks who reenter with nothing, with no family support, right. Who's been ostracized and demonized their entire incarceration and kicked back to the streets. Like I know they struggle. And I talked to a lot of my friends too, who, who were incarcerated and got out. They shared with me, he, like one of my friends, he said, I struggled for three years. Like I was working $13 an hour jobs. Like it was under minimum wage. I had to do jobs under the table because people wouldn't hire me because they knew I had a record. As soon as they did the record, they're like, oh, no. I think another thing, too, that's so understated that doesn't that doesn't get spoke uh, much about, like I learned when I got out, was credit. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know how important credit was. Right. Like you need credit to finance a vehicle. You need you got to have you got to have some credit if you want to rent a house or at least some pay stubs if you want to rent a house. I'm supposed to rent something if I'm fresh out, no pay stubs, no credit and, and just learning that whole system and having it like, thank God I have my partner to help navigate that. But otherwise, like there's so much that we're just thrust into the wild and just say, good luck. Yep. I came out, found out, had somebody had stolen my identity, probably figured that I'd die in there. Never knew who it was. Never knew how they got my social security number. $70,000, 19 fraudulent accounts. Mm. No one to help. You know, call credit, call creditrepair.com. I'm giving them $100 a month. That it's They fix like 12 of them in 15 months. They want to keep that $100 a month coming. Mm. Parole, um, there's no help for that. I have no idea how anything about credit. Get out of transitional housing. Try to go find a place to live. Do you have a 640 credit score above? No, actually... I got a 523 because someone stole my identity. Do you have two years of pay stubs? No. Do you have a year, uh, two years of rental history, a year of pay stubs? No, I'm, I just get out of prison. Yeah. I got, I got a job though. Yeah. I got a bachelor's degree. Yeah. I'm willing to pay you every, every month. Yeah. I know I'm, 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 I'm trustworthy. I didn't get no write-ups for 20 years. I'm <laughs> trustworthy, you know? And they're like, sorry, dude, you don't even put in application cause you're just not going to get it. Yeah. Um, and folks in there don't know that that's how, that's how important that support system is. Mm. And like you said, there's plenty of people in there don't need to be there anymore. Mm. They, whether they they took on the media route or the education route or some type of vocation or whatever. And their, their whole mindset is different. I tell mm. people you couldn't get me to take a still a paper clip now mm. because once I shifted my mindset, it's a now a natural expression of who I am. Mm. It's a new way of being. Yeah. That old the old person's gone. There's no going back. It's, mm-hmm. it's not it's not there anymore. Yeah. So so now even it, there's tens of thousands of people that don't need to be in there no, no more because they're not no longer arrestable. They're going to mm. come out, become taxpayers, community members, doing amazing things, and um. And yet here these are, you could have a master's or a bachelor's degree and you come out and you're homeless and because mm. there's the opportunities. So, Factual. yeah. All right. And that's why I love what y'all do. And that's Ted is, Ted is my dog, man. Shout out to Ted. Yeah. When I first heard, like found out that what y'all were trying to do a crop, I was just amazed. I was like, man, we need that. We need that badly. Right. And, and I was blessed that I had, I had mentors in there. Um, who were just incredible. I was around incredible people and that's luck. Like, honestly, I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and without them, without these mentors, like prepping me to be in the workforce, right. prepping me to develop some, some employable skills. Like if it wasn't for them, like I wouldn't be sitting here today with you. Right. I'd probably be still sitting inside a prison serving the rest of my sentence. 
Tell us a little bit about Norway. Oh man, Norway, Norway was a beautiful blessing. Shout out to Uncuffed. Um, yeah, so as soon as I got out, they're like, hey man, you want to go to Norway? I was like, absolutely. They was like, well, you got to get a passport, a plane ticket. You got to get all this, a travel pass from your PO. And man, and, and the staff at Uncuffed, Nina, Nina Gensler Deb, shout out. Um, she hollered at my, my PO for me, like spoke me up. Because first my PO was treating me kind of bad. And then after that, uh, he didn't treat me bad, but I can tell he was extremely skeptical. You know what I mean? He was like, man, he's, is this just another one of those scumbags in their eyes? Mm-hmm. But after and if then, someone's not speaking up, you ain't going to nowhere. No. Shoot, I can't even go to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> just because there's no one speaking up. And like, I don't want to do the paperwork. Right. Right. So I had Nina. She spoke up and then uh, she was able to convince my PO to let me go to Norway. Right. And, and Norway, we were going to a prison radio conference, mm-hmm. actually. Right. And it was a conference bringing people who were doing prison radio all over the world to Norway. One, to tour the prisons and explore their radio program. Right. But to two, just to network and connect and share like best practices. And that was honestly like a life changing experience for me. Like. Before this, like I was a slum baby from South Sacramento. You know what I mean? I ain't never been nowhere. I ain't never done nothing. Like I was like sheltered on my block because of fear that the rest of the world would kill me. Right. So it's like this is the first time ever leaving the country, ever being on a plane. Right. Uh, Being in a whole different culture. And it just opened up my eyes and it was like, whoa. Right. Like this is beautiful. And someone shared with me, I forgot I was watching a movie and it said that, uh, I forgot what movie it was, but someone said something about traveling. It said that when you're traveling, right, there's like no pressure for you to be anything, mm-hmm. right? Nobody knows you, right? They don't know that I'm formally incarcerated. They don't know any of the things that I've experienced. I have a fresh, I'm a fresh slate, right? And, awesome. then, and that's like your truest expression when there's no pressure, Right. That, that is, you find out who you truly are on the inside, how you like to show up in the world. And I think I and I found that I found that in myself. Like I was like, I just love I love loving on people. I love just meeting people, being kind, making friends. But I think the most impactful thing of going to Norway was actually touring the prisons that they had. Right. Um for everybody watching right now, I'm sure there's a lot of people you hear about this Norwegian model, like they're the greatest. And we need to emulate the Norway model, right? And I hate to tell you, I hate to be the one to be like mythbusters, but it's a myth, y'all. Right now, Norway is facing Geneva Convention violations for their excess, excessive amount of isolation mm. because of how much money has been cut back from prison programs over there. They can't afford to staff the prisons. Mm. And because they can't staff the prisons, they can't let people out of their cells. So what has happened in result because of the lack of funding, majority of incarcerated people in Norway right now spend about 23 hours a day in their cells. Mm. So when I went to this prison and I toured this prison, I stepped in. It was beautiful, bright, had colors, new facilities. They had even a great podcasting room. Looked similar to this, right? It was amazing. But they only could use it an hour of a day, right? And then, like, I think the most powerful thing that, that stuck with me was that I wasn't sure what the currently incarcerated folks over there would say to me, right? But I didn't expect every, darn near every single one of them said, please help me. Please tell the world that we're suffering right now. 
They got us locked down 23 hours a day. I'm losing my mind in that cell. That's shoe term stuff. Right. And this is the most progressive prisons in the world. Mm -hmm. Is having Geneva Convention violations for solitary confinement. Like it blew my mind. So it, it really made me wonder and it really made me question about, all right, the direction that we want to push California in, right? Like we can easily spend a lot of money and build prettier prisons, but all it takes is one political win to blow the wrong way. Those pretty prisons will be simply places of punishment and isolation. They'll just leave them all in their cells, just like they're doing in Norway right now. So yeah, it's not just about aesthetics; it's about mindset, and then also have the funding to back it up. Like philosophically, you may be sound, mm. but without funding, you're back. You got you, you created something worse, right? Ton yeah. man, uh, time flies, dude. I gotta I gotta have you back now that I know you're in Sacramento. <laughs> Shoot, we might have to do this once a month or something for sure, I'm with <laughs> man. Why not close the last minute or so? How people could reach you, Ella Baker Center. And then free flow, a message to um, our brothers and sisters who are still incarcerated, um, a message of hope and inspiration. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you can find me at Railroaded Underground on Twitter. Um, that's a whole nother story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can also uh, contact me if uh, if you have questions regarding policy or criminal justice work. You can always email me at ton at ellabakercenter.org. Um for a message to all of my currently incarcerated fellows, I want y'all to know, like, I'm pressing five every time y'all call, you know, like, call me, reach mm -hmm. out, like, I'm here for you, I'm doing everything I can for you, I swear to God, you know, like, I can't forget how I suffered in there, and I can't forget how you're still suffering in there, so just know that I'm coming for y'all, I'm coming for y'all, and then know that the that there's so many people like me and Richard out here fighting for y'all, you know what I mean, like, we're gonna transform this thing. Right, we've been we've been successful so far, and we're gonna keep the momentum going. So That's what's out. up. Thank you for coming on the show, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you, bro. It's good to see you. I'm proud of you. For those of you on the inside, I have a message as well. We're gonna be getting uh, our applications for the reentry program, Oakland and LA, on the institutional channels, in the hands of the MAC, the counselors, whoever, letting you know what we have out here to offer. Um, on top of that. I just want you to be able to write a crop organization or have a family member reach out. I answer all the emails, all the calls, so they could just reach out to me at, uh, at um, info at croporg.org and um, be able to get back to you as soon as possible with that information. Other than that, you can look at our website, croporganization.org. You can find us on social media at Crop Organization or The Prison Post. Thank you so much, Tom, for being on the show. Definitely going to have you back, bro. Um, Y'all yeah, take care. Shout out. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.